What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is guitarist extraordinaire Eric Johnson. Eric, you posted instructional videos on YouTube during COVID. Tell me about that. Well, it was kind of a, a crazy time. Um, and so, you know, with everybody being kind of insulated, I thought, what could I do to help? And I just thought doing all these uh, uh, lessons... Um, and asking people to contribute to the food bank because, um, you know, hearing about people not being able to eat, I mean, it's just like, man, you know. So I thought, well, that's a little something I can do. And um, it kind of gives way to like, well, what else can you do? You know, what what, what can you keep doing, you know, because a lot of people are struggling, you know. So I just tried to do something, and it's something that people could get something out of, you know. Okay, so when you make a lesson, what goes through your mind? What do you want to teach? Well, when I did, I did a series of 29 lessons for that. And basically, I just tried to impart the little uh, pieces of the puzzle that helped me garner and, and, and create my style and my playing or my concept of music. And so I tried to keep it in little encapsulated pitch, uh, pieces. I'm <clears throat> like, oh, you know, one would, and they usually were only like two, two minute, three minutes long. And I would show an example and I would just show like a little thing each time. Like, oh, here's how, here's how you hold the pick. Here's how you touch the string. And here's, here's your intention philosophy or, you know, uh, all just all the different apertures of how to make music. And um, so I just tried to leave it in little tiny mini vignette chapters um, and did 29 of them and stuff. Yeah. Well, for those who haven't seen them, give us an example. Uh, well, you know, I would do one like on here's how I hold the pick, you know, and here's how I strike the string. And then I would play a little piece of music showing that I would sometimes I would say, well, here's here's if you don't quite strike it correctly, in my opinion, 
and here's when you strike it correctly, and I'd show the difference in how it would sound, or how fretting the instrument makes a difference, the sweet spot of how you use your hand to fret the instrument. Like violin players, they want to really have a positive uh, intent in their contact of the string to help their tone. It comes from both the picking and from the fretting. And um, or, or I do one on uh, muting, which is... Um, it's kind of like, uh, we, you know, when you paint, you paint all this stuff, but then there's all the stuff you don't paint that creates the velocity of stuff you do paint. So when you're playing an instrument, you play the instrument, but then you have to mute and basically turn off all the parts that you're not playing. So that means you have to use your hands to mute the strings where you're not playing so that you can provide a purity to the notes that you are playing. It's kind of like... Uh, muting the space between the notes, you know, so it's cleaner and purer sounding. Well, guitar playing, is it nature or nurture? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I think that anything people do in life, if they have a passion or an interest or they have a connection with it, then they automatically have uh, interest and enthusiasm and, and more galore to get out there and go for it, you know. But I think there's a People have an, uh, maybe a, a certain talent that's intrinsic in them, but I think it's mostly purported by your interest and your just dedication because you, you love doing it, you know? So how did you pick up the guitar? Uh, when I was three years old, my, my uh, this is many, many years ago, my dad um, had some, you know, back in the days before cable TV, he's like, he built a, a 50 foot antenna outside and uh, he had some um, gentlemen come over to help him set it in concrete and stuff. And at the end of it, one of the, the men named Morris Young, he got out a guitar and plugged in outside and we had a little party because, ah, oh, they finished the TV now, you know, the area whatever. And he's playing all this Elmore James and Jimmy Reed stuff, this distorted tone. I was just like, oh my, that's just a, incredible sound but soon after that I, I started taking piano lessons so i kind of uh set aside the interest in guitar and just studied piano for seven years but and then i, I re-got back into guitar when i was 11 because that's when the you know the uh, my brother had a, a friend named bobby spiller that played guitar and he brought his band over and they're doing all these adventure tunes and um really early pop tunes like in 64 65 and uh, I just was real enamored with it. Okay, piano, to what degree do your skills remain and to what degree can you still read music? Well, I can read music. I'm, I'm a pretty poor reader, uh, mostly because I don't keep it up. And I, But I usually kind of learn by ear. I still play piano, and I, I, I play piano a little bit live, um, especially if I do like solo acoustic tours. But I usually play a considerable amount of keyboards on my records, and um, I love piano. Piano's kind of like my favorite first instrument, even though I'm not, I'm not a great pianist by any means, but I, I have the, 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 the potential inside me to kind of understand it, so I try to push myself and do as good a job as I can on playing it. Okay, well, at this late date, there's so many different kinds of keyboards with different sounds from Roland. There are synthesizers. Are you also uh, a fan, and do you delve into that, or are you more of a purist? I like acoustic piano mostly. So usually when I, if I do use it live, I'll try to find a really good 
synth that has a very nice natural acoustic grand piano sound. And every once in a while I'll use like a Fender Rhodes setting, but mostly I just go for just the natural sound. Um, and when I do the solo acoustic tours, I'll actually use a grand piano and we'll just mic it. But I, I like synthesizers and everything they do. I, it's just not really something I've gotten into. Okay, so your brother starts playing. How much was it the Ventures? Because if you go back there, there was really a line of demarcation between the Ventures, the Four Seasons, the Beach Boys, and all of a sudden, January 64, the Beatles come along. So yeah. how influential for you was the British invasion in the Beatles? Oh, it was huge. It was huge. It was just like this uh, incredible new entrance of of music and 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 people's uh personas and lifestyle and stuff and it was fascinating i think that no matter what i took in it was always i always was really looking for guitar stuff at that point i was just just I had an insatiable desire to learn more about guitar so you know originally um i think noki edwards of the ventures was a huge hero and uh somebody I learned to play from, I would just pick out um, his uh, records note for note. And then uh, then I got into uh, the Yardbirds with Jeff Beck and, um, you know, uh, John May on the Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton. And you know, just sit and learn learn it note for note, uh, which is, a, uh, I think, a great ongoing chapter in somebody's uh, evolution, you know, to copy. I mean, I I remember when I was a kid play, starting to play shows and everybody's like, oh, you're just playing exactly like, you know, Eric Clapton or something. But I think I encourage kids to do that because that's how you are able to study the, that, that screen of expertise of how somebody does what they do. And then you, you, um, you go from that. You don't want to stay there. It's just, a, uh, you know, you want to be your own person, your own own artist, but I think it's a, a valuable step. So that's what I did. Those were the guys that started me. But I, I liked the Beatles. I mean, the, and the Rolling Stones. I loved Brian Jones, like the early, early, early Rolling Stones stuff. Okay, back in those days when we all picked up the guitar, the big thing we did was we put on the record and we kept dropping the needle. We might slow the record down. Is that how you learn mm -hmm. the notes or... How'd yeah, it? yeah, it's way different than nowadays. If you got into a really hard lick, okay, put it on sixteen. I can't play that fast. And then you'd have to like think in your mind, okay, I'm going to transpose that up two octaves or whatever. Yeah, it was. It's a way different day than nowadays. It's like that four minute mile thing, you know. And as 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 we have more and more, we go forward. I mean, yeah. You know, if you look at people and what they do in motocross, where they they jump up in the air and they flip the bike and they flip themselves, but they're not even connected to the bike. Then they come back and they they join the bike and do that. I mean, like forty years ago, fifty years ago, that's not possible. But you know, it's possible now. And with the you know the advent of of com computers and people being able to slow stuff down and, and just, you know, completely dissect something on a sonic level. It um, is really, it's a faster learning process, I think. And did you ever take lessons? I took piano lessons for seven years and I took guitar lessons for two or three months. And I, I got in trouble for something I did I, I don't know exactly. I can't remember what it was I did, but my parents grounded me and they said, oh, okay, we're grounding you and we're taking away your guitar lessons, which I was like, oh no, God, don't do that. <laughs> you know, because, but what I, I, and so what it forced me to do, I said, well, I can play piano. So I sat down with the guitar and the piano 
And I started hitting the notes on the piano, and I would find them on the guitar. And I would just one by one find all the notes on the guitar on each string as relating to the piano. So I, I, and then I realized there was a symmetry there. And then I was able, oh, I see. So all I got to do is transfer that over to here, and then I can kind of look at the guitar from a musical standpoint. Okay, but there's some basic things, you know, making a G chord, which fingers you use, slide which fingers you use. Did you just stumble in or someone say, no, this is the way to do it? Well, I had a friend named Jimmy Shade who was ahead of me on guitar, and he would come over. He was about three years older than me, and he was playing in bands and stuff, and he'd come over and show me a lot of stuff. And he had a great ear. He could pick anything off a record, and so... Between me just trying on my own and, and him showing me stuff, I was able to kind of just keep going forward. And at this late date, if I play you a record, how long will it take you to learn that record? Uh, well, it depends on the piece of music, but um, it's uh, I'm able to do that. Just sit and you know work on it and, and learn it. Okay, so you're playing guitar. What guitar are you using? Well, it, it's... Uh, my very first guitar I ever played, probably when I was 11, just turned 11, was I went over to my dad to a friend of his, and they had a little Stella acoustic, and they let me borrow it for a few weeks, and my first song I learned was Your Cheating Heart. But then I had to give the Stella back, but because I was so enamored with the ventures, I was... Um, I. I pleaded with my dad that I could get an electric guitar, so we went down to J.R. Reed Music in downtown Austin, um, and... Uh, he bought me a white Fender. Well, he, he we got on loan of a Fender Music Master. Took it home, and it was. Um, I think I guess my dad was planning on buying, it, but it was kind of like he was like, "Well, I don't know. We'll check it out." And and I was, it was sitting on the bed, and I was jumping up and down the bed, and the guitar fell over on the ground and put a big scratch on it. And my dad said, "Oh well, I guess we have to buy it now." <laughs> <laughs> And that's how that I got the guitar. I don't know if he was playing, if that was, I don't know how that all went, but he was kind of like, ah, you put a big scratch on it, so now I guess we have to buy it. But that's how I got the guitar. And what did you do for the amplifier? You know what? I, I did not have an amplifier, but we had a voice of music tape recorder. And I found out that if you put in record play and then you put it in pause, you're putting it into monitor position, although it's not running the tape but it would monitor whatever you did. And then I would plug, it had guitar jacks on it, so I'd plug into that. And it actually had a killer tone, and I'd just crank up the uh, tape recorder and sit there and play through it. And I um, actually blew the speakers in the tape recorder, which is kind of crazy. But that was my first uh, amplifier thing until um, my dad and I were, um, we were at a, a shopping center in Austin, and... There was this tiny little music store, and right in the window, they had this used Fender Deluxe amp for 75 bucks. I remember that, and, I t and my dad bought that for me. So I, that was my first. I was probably about 12 when I got that amp, and I finally, had a, I finally got an amp. And do you still have that guitar and that amp? No, that would be so cool to have that. You know, it's like your toys from when you're five years old. You, know, you think about them. Ah, oh, that would be. You don't realize those little things in life are so big so important so much more important than all the the big facade of all this ah that's this and that or you know this it's the little things that mean something but no i don't okay so you're growing up in the late 50s and 60s you're in austin austin has always been the weird part of texas what was it like growing up then in austin 
Well, I didn't realize at the time, but it was a beautiful place because um, it had an influx of so many styles of music, it, namely country, um, but there were blues artists coming through there. And there was a lot of clubs playing rock music, and um, there was just a lot of live music, uh, which preceded why I got the name Live Musical Capital of the World. It, it, it was amazing how much there was going on there and it was all different and of course you had the cajun influence and um by the time i was getting serious about guitar there was just all sorts of things to 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 you know people to go see there was a uh, i learned to play a lot by johnny richardson from georgetown medical band um i'd go hear him every tuesday night at the jade room because he was a just a wonderful player uh one of the great rock players and him and jim mings and john stahaley were just the great players of austin during that time and i just like admire these guys and go here and play and you know they they'd kind of let me sneak in in the back when i was 14 and hear these people and um but it was amazing i remember the first time i went to la when i was like 19 i was like where are all the live clubs it, it there seemed to be less there as far as rock music than there was in the the central part of texas but there was it's it's a lot going on there, yeah. So, what did your parents do for a living? My dad was a MD; he was an anesthesiologist, and my mom was a um, housewife. And how many kids in the family? There's five of us. And where are you in the hierarchy? I'm the youngest. You're the youngest. Yeah. Do you get any advantage? Usually, the youngest they're very lenient with the youngest. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I got a lot of it. <laughs> advantage but it was uh you know my mom was very supportive of the music because she was like whatever makes you happy and my dad i think initially was not because he was worried when he saw i got so serious about it coming from being a doctor and i and rightly so you know it's like all of a sudden you start growing your hair out and lose interest a little bit in in pursuing school and want to play rock music i can see how you know, because, you know, no parent knows, oh, yeah, well, it's okay, because he's going to do okay. You know, they don't know. And, and, uh, but later, later when he saw that things were okay, I think he became supportive about it. And so you get really into music. You go to public school or private school? I went to public school until uh, 10th grade. And then I went to a uh, private school that's no longer here, but it was called Holy Cross High School. And, one of the main reasons is because they they would let you grow your hair long. <laughs> you didn't have a, you could uh, you could drink cokes in class, and it was kind of just real uh, liberal kind of school. Or uh, at that time, I guess a lot you know kids might not understand now, but there used to be a dress code, and your hair couldn't be too long. And I was like, oh man, I can't do that. I got to go to, I'm going to go to this private school so I can grow my hair out. Meanwhile, you're doing that. What are your four older siblings doing? Well, my brother, uh, he was, uh, he had already started uh, college. And at one point, he went into the Navy for 10 years and, and was uh, on nuclear subs and stuff. Um, my other sisters, uh, well, one of them got married young and moved to Alaska, and the other two went to college. Um, one became a CPA and one became a nurse. Okay, so you're in school. Are you known as the guy who plays the guitar? Well, a little bit, yeah. Um, yeah, I would play a little bit at, at talent shows and stuff. 
there was in in junior high school there were uh, there was a, a gal named Marina Jenkins and me. Uh, we were probably the only two people playing guitar at that time in junior high. Um, and I think I played a little bit at talent shows. And uh, but yeah. Well, were you the type of kid who picked up the guitar and then suddenly stopped playing sports and stopped hanging with their friends and was practicing for five hours a day? What were you like? Yeah, that is what happened. Um, I was really, I was, yeah, I just never really did sports. I mean, I loved, you know, uh, swimming and water skiing and, and, and stuff on my own outside of school, but um, I didn't really pursue sports in school. I By that time, I was so immersed in music, I would just, um, I remember in, in ninth grade, I'd just try to race home so I could see where the action is on, on TV. You know, that was at 3.30 and I got out of school like at 3.15, so I had to run home. I wanted to see that. But um, at, by that point, I was so immersed in guitar that, um, you know, and there's two sides to everything. I think I missed a lot of high school, you know. Uh, I don't mean physically missed it. I just, you know, just my heart wasn't in it and you know your heart can be in different ways it doesn't necessarily mean the subjects but you know just people and and getting to know people and and just having the experience of that uh community uh even when you're a kid but i I think i was so just transfixed by music that i would i just kind of was a little bit absent um as far as i would just sit in school waiting for it to be over you know Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Wark, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. 
As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Okay, so what point did you start playing in bands, and what did that look like? Um, well, I started when I was... I remember when I was like 12, I played in this band called The Id, but we, and I didn't even know what the name meant. Um, the bass player named it The Id, but we never really played any gig. I think we might have played one gig. But after that, when I was 13, I played in a copy band called The Sounds of Life. And, um, you know, my parents would come to some of the shows and I'd try to not fall asleep because some of the gigs went late. But uh, uh, that, yeah, it was an interesting experience, but, um, I, uh, I, on, on vacation, I think I did that till I was 14 and I went on vacation, uh, to Alaska with my parents for a month, which was really wonderful to, to go to Alaska. And when I came back, the rhythm guitarist had gotten better. And while I was gone, they said, well, we're firing you because the rhythm guitarist has gotten better and he's learned how to play Jeff's boogie and we don't need two guitarists. So I got fired from that group. And that's uh, when I started just practicing more on my own, and I met uh, a drummer named Vince Mariani, and um, I entered a, a group that he led when I was about uh, late 14 or 15 years old, and we started working together. Okay, so take me up to graduating from high school. Well, I, uh, I, when I was in 10th, 10th and 11th grade, Vince and I played together uh, with Jimmy Bullock, and, and we did this, um, and Jay Aaron. We played around, opened for um, some famous groups, and we're doing quite well. But um, I guess after that, I uh, kind of, that kind of was not, it kind of went into kind of an idle thing, and I, I just started kind of working on my own until I met. Um, yeah, I was just kind of jamming with people and doing all sorts of odds and ends, playing in another copy band when I was in 12th grade, um, but didn't really want to do that too much. It, I didn't really enjoy it that very much. And right after 12th grade is when I met um, the Electromagnets, which is uh, Kyle Brock and Bill Maddox and Steve Barber. And I joined their group because um, they were real inspired by Chick Corea's Hymn of the Seventh Galaxy record with Bill Connors. And so that's what I, I, we started playing jazz fusion stuff right, right after I graduated from high school. So you graduate from high school. What's the dream at that point, and what about college? Well, I tried college. I took two classes. Um, embarrassing to admit I, the first one was calculus i went to one class when i can't do this and the other, <laughs> one, the other one was astronomy because i was interested in astronomy and i i did i completed the class and almost made an a i think i made like an 89 or something i, I almost made an a minus in it but it, i found it very interesting and i i i like astronomy but i don't know i just decided you know i just want to i think I, i'm going to learn music uh, and and um, the guys in the Electromagnus had gone to music school, and they, they were kind of ahead of me as far as knowing music theory, so I was learning from them. And I just decided that that's the way I wanted to, to go, you know, life experiences, and we just started going on the road and playing anywhere we could get a gig. Okay, so it's like more than 15 years before you get your first record deal with Warner Rapides. You know, what's happening in that 15 years? 
Well, when we started the electromagnets, uh, that that configuration of it, we just started playing and playing and playing. And you know, uh, our manager Park Street put out um, electromagnet record, um, but we kind of put it out on our own because we really couldn't get anybody else to put it out. And we did fairly well with it, and the gigs got better and better. At some point, uh, we just kind of disbanded, started doing different things, and I guess um, that was like you know seventy six. Um, I just I said, well, I'll just kind of put my own group together. And oddly enough, though, I'd rehired the drummer and bass player from Electromagnus to um, when they were available to just do this trio of my own uh, band. And I just started playing around and playing these pop tunes and singing. And some of it was kind of like not great, but some of it had was pretty good. But I just started playing clubs around Austin, and that grew a little bit to where we started having a. Um, People coming out, and it was just, you know, and then the, the configuration changed all the time. The drummer, Steve Metter, or bass player, Rob Alexander, um, it just kind of different people would um, get together and, 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 and play with me, and I just uh, started trying to grow that audience, and um, I think it's... Uh, it just was years and years of doing that and trying to get something going, and of course... I signed with a manager in Texas. Um, I had offers to sign with a manager in New York and one in Texas. And um, um, Nat Weiss was in uh, New York, and he took me to New York, and I got to meet all these people like James Taylor and um, John McLaughlin and Lenny White. And that's I, I where I met Cat Stevens and, and uh, where I got to work with Cat on um, his record, a couple of records after that. But... Um, the, the the manager in Texas was really wanting me to sign with him, and for some reason I decided, well, I'll come back to Texas and sign with this this person. <laughs> and I don't know, you know, that's just kind of the way I did that, and then that turned into an interesting situation where it's all subjective, you know. We made I made a record called Seven Worlds, and um, yeah, it was kind of had to go through the the gateway of of the manager to decide what to do and what not to do. Should it come out? Should it not come out? So I just had, it was a kind of a waiting game for years until I tried to get out of the deal. How'd you finally get out of the deal? Uh, uh, well, I I had a lawyer, and it was um, I just just wanted to to yeah just um to 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 go my own way because it didn't seem like um things were quite uh working out you know and um but it, it can get complicated sometimes because it is subjective somebody puts money into you and they think they're doing the right thing and you're sitting around waiting for something to happen i i think there's a lot of people in in history when you know it's i think it's important and for kids to you know to remember that you know you start your trajectory of music First off, there'll never be something more important than just doing the music and, and turning people on. You know, you get in your head, oh, I want to get the record deal, or oh, I want to have more people out there. But no, it, it ends up turned out when you look at it, you go, that's not the important stuff. The thing is just enjoying playing for other people. But at the time, you know, you're, oh, you know, you're so, you know, you want this, this and that and get that record deal, whatever. But I think that it's important, you know, like I heard the story of like Loretta Lynn, you know, when Plan A, fails you go to plan b if plan b doesn't work you go to plan c she sold records out of her trunk you know because nobody wanted to you know what i mean it's like so 
I think that's what I ran into. You know, you get into a thing where, oh, got to wait for this record, especially in that time. It's different now, but in that time, oh, you got to get signed to, you know, uh, Sony Records or, or whoever. And and you can sit around on on the chair at the soda fountain waiting to be discovered, to be the next star, you know, and, and your life can pass by. You know, but the thing is, you got to go to plan B and C, which means just put, just put out the record yourself, you know, build, staircase your thing. And so... That's what I, I saw that I was not getting anything going at the time and it was just not working out. We we're getting a lot of rejections and I was like, well, let's just do what we can. Let's go to plan B. But you have to filter that through other people's go, no, no, we got to wait for the big pie in the sky or whatever. But so it was just a lot of waiting game until you just get enough interest to where somebody goes, okay, well, we got to take a look at this person because they've got something going on, you know? Let's go back. How did Nat Weiss find you? He saw a video of Electromagnets um, playing. Uh, we did a, a show. Um, there was a studio TV show in Atlanta in like 1975 or six of us just playing um, um, on. Uh, I think it was called maybe Soundstage or something. And it was it was a popular uh, video sh uh, TV show in Atlanta, and we were uh, one of the guests on one of the TV shows, and he saw it. And he called me and asked me to come to New York. And Nat had, uh, had worked with Brian Epstein and stuff with the Beatles. And he, he was quite a, a well-known lawyer that had kind of branched. He had come up with this record label called Nimperer Records. And um, so I went up there and, um, yeah. Okay, they had Andy Pratt. There were other acts that he managed yeah, that's on right. his label. Yeah, well, But yeah. you go and you have this brush with fame, and then you go back to Austin, and it's like you're in your own world again? Or, you know, is anybody ever calling you in that interim? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I It's just, I guess it's, you know, it's the way it worked out. But the the person that wanted me to come back to, oh, no, you got to come back to Texas. It's going to be great, 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 great. And, you know, maybe they meant well, and maybe they had a, a vision. I don't really know. But I'm the one, you know, that, that decided to come back. You know, I could have said, no, I'll just stay up here with – see what happens with Nat Weiss and stay in New York. But um, so when I did come back to Austin, it was then and things kind of slowed down, you know, because we, we had some uh, velocity and we were playing gigs and drawing hundreds of people and stuff and it was going great, but I kind of uh, was just um, waiting, you know, for that next move, you know. But it that move had to be just... Uh, designated by someone else you know and that then it's it can get frustrating sometimes okay so you're living in austin you making any money you're living at home you're scraping by what's going on no i actually um i i was able to kind of uh, uh yeah which is kind of irony i think back i don't know exactly how i did it because i was playing this original music and i was able to make enough money to to make rent and, and get by. I mean, I wasn't making a lot of money by any stretch, but I was able to survive, which was kind of a blessing in itself when, you know, you, you don't really have, you know, you're not a super high stature artist, but you're able to play your own music and go around and play gigs. But I was able to uh, do okay. And do you ever think of giving up? Uh, I never thought about giving up playing, no. I guess I got frustrated with what to do or how to do things to to get things rolling better um 
But no, I I just uh, I enjoyed it too much. I think, and that the enjoyment is what got me through, regardless of what happened with the career stuff. Okay. So, meanwhile, as you're doing varying things, music itself is going through a lot of changes. We have the guitar heroes of the late 60s. We have prog rock in the 70s. We have corporate rock. We have disco. I mean, are you living your own world? Are you saying, well, where do I fit in with these other genres? Yeah, I think I just did whatever I wanted to do. I'm sure it had an influence on me, but I didn't. I didn't feel any pressure to try to mimic or get with the times or anything. I just wanted to just do whatever I felt like doing. Uh, guitar, you know, as far as musically, whatever I felt was the best I could do. So 70s, you're with the band. You don't get a record deal till deep into the 80s. What's going on there? Well, it just never kind of came together with the, the management in Texas. So I... Um, eventually was able to get out of that and i just kept playing uh I, there was a period where i couldn't really play live I, I i i just did uh solo acoustic gigs for a year or so but then i met uh my manager joe priestnitz a wonderful man that started managing me and managed me for 38 years until he passed away a couple of years ago um but we just kind of started designing a thing of just playing playing gigs and just trying to get things rolling and really it was another few years of just i was fortunate that um ever since i was 15 years old i i knew christopher cross we've been friends and um he got signed to uh warner brothers music and so um he told warner brothers about me and they were kind of like lukewarm interested um but I just kept playing and playing and playing until finally um, Austin City Limits asked if I wanted to do a show on there in um, 80, I think it was late 83, and I did it in 84. I did a, a, a I had my own uh, show on Austin City Limits, and I think, you know, there was a point where Warner Brothers decided, well, maybe we'll work with this guy. So they brought me to LA to live and start kind of grooming me. So I spent another from 84 to 85 just like hanging with uh record execs and producers and arrangers and trying they were i think basically they were trying to figure that i think they were interested in me but they were like what do we do with this guy we don't even know what to do we don't know if this you know but they were interested enough to keep things rolling but not enough to really push the button on it and stuff and and that was as they were so i kept doing demos and and um and sending them in and and uh and trying to find a producer to do uh my first record with warners okay before you moved to la how far can you work you talked about doing the gig in atlanta but generally speaking was it a texas thing or how far away from texas could you work no, at we all? started we started getting gigs um Louisiana, Alabama, a little bit Oklahoma, but main, there was a real hot spot for us in South Carolina and Charleston. We played Charleston a whole lot for some reason. We just got a, a really good uh, crowd going in, in Charleston, but we played Florida and just kind of the southern states. We just kind of, it just kept kind of growing slowly. So you had an agent who was booking these dates? Well, I did with the manager in Texas. He had his own agent that uh, booked me originally. And then after that, uh, Joe Priestness would just uh, kind of book me on his own, my manager, because he had come from a booking agency called Rock Arts before 
before he went into management. So he would just book me. Okay, you're cutting demos, looking for a producer. How do you end up making that record? Uh, well, I think we just kept doing demos, and hopefully they just kept getting a little bit better. And I think it came down to two people that I was going to work with, either Bill Payne from Little Feet, which would have been kind of really cool to do, or um, Dave Tickle, who worked with Crowded House. And um, we decided for the moment, you know, to go with Dave Tickle. And I, Dave, was a, he's a very uh, talented producer and engineer and, and pretty well known. And so I think that that really made Warners feel a little bit more confident. So I think at that point they said, okay, let's make this record. So that's when we started making Tones in 85. And were you happy with the final record? I was, yeah. I think it was a snapshot of where we were. It didn't, it didn't encapsulate everything, but um, I think it, it's an interesting record. So how does the record, the record comes out, and then ultimately your relationship with the company ends? Tell me about that. Well, um, yeah, I don't know. I think they brought me into the office. You know, because the record did okay, not not great, but they came, they they brought me into the office and they said, you know, we're not really going to drop you yet, but we're not sure what to do, so we're going to suggest that rather than make you could stay here and make your second record, but we don't really have a lot of people that are that interested in getting behind it, so we advise you to just leave the deal and we'll let you <laughs> let you do it you know so they were kind of like on the fence they're like well we don't know we don't really let him go but we'd kind of rather for his own sake just to go somewhere else because we don't really we're not really our heart's not in it you know so i took their advice and i i just didn't do it and, well how disillusioning was that well it was, a, it, was it was it was it was kind of a bummer because i i'd felt like you know, for all the ups and downs, I had some kind of family with these people and, and, um, they were good people. I mean, they just doing what they think's right. And I think they were probably just looking for something to be a big hit. You know, I think a lot of record companies, they, they, it's, it's not like Concord jazz where they'll put out stuff, you know, and you know, a lot of the big labels like, well, we want to concentrate on the stuff that's really going to do something or, or at least that we think it's going to do something, you know, and, I think if they didn't know, you know, this like, well, let's put our energy elsewhere. But I met two guys, uh, Lee Abrams and Denny Somak, who had started Cinema Records. And they were subs uh, distributed by Capitol Records. And they said, oh, we'd love to do a record with you. And uh, so I, I signed a deal with Cinema Records. and started so How did you meet those two uh, big radio guys? Lee yeah, Abrams, le uh, legendary promoter. I don't know. They just, they, those guys, yeah. And, but they loved like rock guitar and they loved the yard birds and they liked that kind of off the cuff stuff. So they called Joe Priestess one day and said, man, you know, we just really like what he does and we, we'd we like to do something together, which is, yeah, it was kind of like, really? You know, because you're already off here. But, um, you know, and they were just into it from on on this is maybe a side gig of theirs or something. And so they they had started this record company and said, "Let's make this record. We really we really would like to do that." And so that's when I started putting together um, Avia Musicom. Okay, so did they sign you to Capital first, or did you make the record and then Capital decided to distribute it? 
Well, you know, it's interesting what happened. I was with Cinema, and I'd gotten well into the record, and um, Cinema dissolved uh, for some reason. I'm not sure why um, Lee and Denny dissolved it, but so there was a there was a pivotal point where. Uh, it defaulted to capital, to, at which point they could have gone, we're not interested or we're interested to pick it up. And what happened is there was so much money invested in it that capital went, well, there's we got this money invested in it, so let's just go ahead and see it through. So it was kind of by default that I ended up on capital. <laughs> and uh, they just, they said, well, we're going to just, let's just see this through. So they, they, uh, they did that and they, um, uh, and I just kind of ended up on Capitol, and I, and I was about halfway through the record, and I just kept working on it. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safty, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Okay, that was an interesting time at Capitol Hill. Milgram came from Electra. Yeah. He really pushed you. To what degree did you believe that was fortuitous, and to what degree did you feel Hale supporting you? Well, it was, um, I didn't really know Hale at that point. I was working with somebody else. Um, 
I didn't really have much contact with him. They just kind of consented to let him do his thing. I was the first time I got to produce a record myself, and I was just really intent on making a, a, a strong guitar record. I figured I've got to really make my stamp in this way. Um, so that was my main con, uh, concentration. Um, and that's what I did. I, I it's, was probably the beginning of my just incessant doing stuff over and over and over, trying to get it just just right you know which is that's good in a way but not good in other ways you know you can it can be a diminishing a return thing but i just kept at it until i made the best the best record i could and um i went a little over budget it for even though it, it you know maybe at the time it wasn't that over budget but for me it was not being a big artist but it, and then i just turned it in to, re, to the record company they they didn't really like the i don't think they liked the record very much in fact i got Got kind of chewed out at Capitol when I turned it in. They were like, wow. you know, they chewed me out for going over budget and they didn't seem very interested in the record. But interestingly enough, it was kind of like a, just a, not a very good vibe. And I was like leaving there and I said, like, well, at least I did the record. At least they'll put it out. I don't know what's going to happen because it didn't feel very good, you know. But I met this guy on the way out named Jeffrey Shane, who was a, a worked in the radio de, uh, department at the time. <clears throat> And he came up to me and he said, man, I heard the record. And he said, I just love this record. And he says, I don't care what anybody thinks here. I'm going to make sure that people hear this record. I'm going to make sure it does something because I just think it's really nice. And I was like, wow, that's cool. And he lived up to his word. I mean, that guy single-handedly initially at Capitol turned the wheels around. It was, I mean, and started i think i owe a lot of uh gratitude to him for getting things going because he just he was relentless he just went to every radio station in the in america and tried to get them interested in something on the record okay well the record cliffs of dover was used in many other areas before it actually broke on the radio because it was an instrumental uses, you know, the the track did not break until a period of time after the album was out Right. So what was going through your mind? Were you think it was over and then were you surprised or what? You know, I I didn't I just went back to playing gigs and I I just felt that I did the best I could on that record and I thought it was a good record and I thought, you know what, I did the best I could and I'm just gonna go forward, you know, and not not put too much um emphasis on on what the reflection is you know because people that heard it you know the fans that heard it seemed well we really like it so that was a that was uh, you know making me feel okay regardless so when it becomes a hit you know what goes through your mind well i was surprised really in a way um the uh it's interesting that we I I just didn't expect it at uh, really, you know, being an instrumental song and and uh, but it just kind of fit in a little niche, you know, on on the radio. It was just like perfect timing on the radio where they it was able to be used right before the news or whatever. But um, and and as you say, I think it was used in sports events and other stuff that kind of got gave it some momentum. But I was surprised, and it just kind of kind of kept kept getting taken off more and more but it was i wasn't expecting that okay but you've been slugging it out for 20 years right okay 
Do you finally feel like you made it? I mean, your touring goes up a big step. There's more of a profile. What's it like being you at that time? Oh, it was great. We were able to play auditoriums and theaters and stuff. And um, gigs, were, gigs were great. And we had good attendance. And uh, yeah, it was it was. Great, and, and the the whole climate at, at Capitol changed. So you know, we'd walk into Capitol, right? Oh, hey, how are you doing? How's it going? Oh, can I get you something? You know, it was kind of funny. You know, that way it can change. But uh, yeah, it was great. So we. Were, and so, why did it take so long for the follow up? Well, that's a good question. I think it's that sophomore ed- effort. And I was like, ah, oh, now I got to really, really make the best record. And you know, I I would have done things a lot different than I did on Venus Isle. Um, I think the record turned out okay. Um, there's a couple songs on it that I'm not. I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. But a lot of it, I I actually never really listened to my music very much. I listened to it a few months ago. And wow, that's really there's some there's some that's you know some people think that that's my best record I did, but that's subjective. But I just got into this thing of doing it over and over and over and over, which, I mean, really, honestly, that was the epitome of just going overboard. We recorded the whole record in Austin, and it actually sounded pretty darn good. And um, I should have, well, I don't use the word should, but I mean, I could have just gone with that, you know, but I oh no, let's go to L.A. and go to A&M Studios and spend tons of money, and it's going to be great, and let's redo it and just go for broke, you know, which... I don't think is the obviously you can get lost in the rabbit hole and you know if you're if you're a huge group then you have a little bit more um uh you know latitude to do that although I still don't think it's the the way to do it really but you know I wasn't that big of a of a an artist to go do that I spent a ton of money making that record I mean just ridiculous amount of money and I think you know you mentioned Hale Milgram I think he hung in there with me but I I think I I put a lot of stress on capital you know just spending taking way too I mean 4 years I mean I had worked on I didn't spend 4 years making the record although that's what the that's what's written oh he spent 4 years I spent 2 and a half years making the record which is crazy enough you know we we spent a couple years on just touring and then I finally started the record again but yeah I spent over 2 years making that record and it's like yeah I I don't think that that was the 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 way I, I could i think i could have done it in other ways and been a little bit more efficient without going down the rabbit hole but that's the way i, I was thinking then okay hail gets blown out you lose your champion uh the sound of music rock starts to fall by the wayside hip-hop becomes big and suddenly you're on independent labels do you feel like you missed your moment uh, well, and I think I'm responsible for a lot of that. Um, I don't know about miss the moment. I mean, cause it's like, how do you equate all that stuff? But to your point, uh, I think I'm responsible that if you, if you create momentum, you have a certain, um, obligation to keep that momentum going. So you have to look at the whole degree of everything. What are you doing? How are you handling this stuff? How, you know, like, don't just disappear for six years and come out with a record and think you're the Beatles and everybody's going to remember you. Don't um, don't get so lost in experimentation that you just got a bunch of you know like I at that point I was working on the record after Venus Isle. I was I was turning in um, tapes to Capitol and I think they were half baked and I didn't really know what I was doing and I was kind of 
you know, just fishing. So I think to your point, yeah, music was changing, but I think during music changing, I wasn't, I could have spent more time just being careful of that momentum, you know, and uh, I think I was just kind of a little bit, not quite, uh, the. I wasn't quite on course then. So yeah, Capital, like, well, he's already spent, you know, a ton of money and he's just doing demos. So they, they kind of got out of the deal, you know. But how depressing is that? You reach the pinnacle not only do you not continue to have sex, I uh, mean, success, excuse me, you might have sex, and uh, you lose your deal. Yeah, yeah. And at the time, I was like, how dare they, you know, but then you think back, you go, well, you know, this, I'm, I'm partially responsible for that, too, um, because you, you, have to, you have to bring it, you know, and, and sometimes it's hardball, and you have to be real careful and, and, and maintain that, uh, that buoyancy. And I'd I'd just spent a lot of time making these half baked demos, and they they got scared because you know it's like the, all this money's going out, and he's just turning in demos. So I think um, that was just a yeah, just you have to you have to take responsibility, you know, to to make a really strong product. You know, you can't just rely on your laurels. Okay, many people have that peak pass it and go straight they get a straight job did you just pick up like nothing happened no I, well i think emotionally it hurt me a lot um i just think i just kind of started to go well i'm just gonna you know keep going forward and keep experimenting with music and see what i can do but i think yeah i think it was um it, it was it, it was a trying time um and at the time, I don't think I, I think at the, at the time, I think I was a little bit more in like this entitlement place where, well, I, you know, I've gotten there, so I should just be able to stay there without any, any extra energy, which is not true. You have to keep, it, you know, uh, for a better or for worse, you have to kind of keep earning your keep as you move through the evolution. Um, so, um I think, you know, and that's, that was one a lesson I had to learn. Well, needless to say, the landscape has worked everybody, even Eric Clapton's on an independent label at this particular point in time. Going back, you mentioned Jeff Beck. So who was your favorite? Who do you think is best from that era? Well, if you're talking about just somebody that's just got that hemispheric guitar concept, I... I really got to say it's Jimi Hendrix and Jeff Beck. Um, it's really hard. I mean, there's a lot of great players, uh, Page and Clapton and Peter Green and, of course, all the blues players, all the Kings and, God, ever. I mean, there's tons of them, and that's just in blues and, and pop and rock. But there was something amazing about Hendrix and Beck that I don't, they're just trailblazers and and created the, the uh, a new flame that 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 arose out of very few library books you know they didn't have a lot to work with to create what they did now we we can go look at 20 man 30 50 manuals on playing guitar but i think at the time they they had like two paragraphs to go oh okay well then i'm going to have to i'm going to have to make this up myself and it's amazing 
if you look at it in that in that picture of of what they did with what they had to work with. So I would say them. So talking about Beck, who ultimately played without a pick, what was your take on that as a guitarist? I thought it was great. Um, I I enjoyed him when he played with a pick too. And uh, so I like both both effects. I think both effects are great. And and really, you can do certain things with each one that you can't do with the other. How about yourself? When do you use a pick and when not? Well, a lot of times when I play acoustic, I don't use a pick. Um, when I play electric, I use a pick. But sometimes it's hybrid playing where I use a pick, but I use my fingers at the same time. And what about Eddie Van Halen, the leader guitarist with tapping, et cetera? Oh, uh, that's amazing. Um yeah, he he probably was principally one of the first people to reinvent guitar after the original guys in the 60s as far as bringing a whole new dimension to it. So how do you write a song? Usually just by jamming, just kind of playing around either on piano or guitar and just coming up with something and then seeing if a melody arises out of that. I kind of let it just do its thing. And usually it spells out whether it should be a vocal or an instrumental. Okay. You know, do you just leave the tape recorder on every time you uh, pick up the guitar? No, no. I just kind of play around and see what's coming up. Sometimes the, the, the ideas just come. I'm not sure from where. I don't even know if you can take credit for them. But um, they just kind of come. But And then you're left with the custodial work of finishing it out connecting the dots but sometimes the big bigger picture just kind of happens and do you pick up the guitar knowing you want to make an album or are you playing every day i usually play every day yeah for how long at different times some days it's for hours and hours some days just 30 minutes and you it never feels like work to you Sometimes, um, I think when I have to get ready for a tour and then I'm really, really, I, I, I have to do, oh, I got to work on these songs and this technique, you know, it's not so much the free form of just playing for fun. It's working on a particular, um, uh, repertoire of music. So you're kind of, you're more bound to, well, this is what I got to work on that. Sometimes I don't feel like doing that, but I have to. And for those who are unfamiliar with your music, how would you describe it? Well, it's, um, I think it never really landed on any, um, one style. It's, I'm, I never really figured out what I like best. And there's so many players that are so great. So there's always something to learn and you can always be a student of music. So I kind of just, um, anytime I can, you know, learn something like a country and flavored thing or blues or jazz or rock, I think it's just kind of, uh, all over the map, maybe. Maybe I have an identity crisis or something. <laughs> well, you know, there were the people in the 80s, like Engvale, Momstein, whatever. People were known for playing incredibly fast. And I've been to see you, and I wouldn't say it's incredibly fast, but I can't believe you can play all those notes and get that sound out. Well, it, um, I think that, you know, a lot of what I do is I just learn from my heroes and I kind of, I took certain things from Jeff Beck, certain things from Eric Clapton and, and Jimi Hendrix and Keith Richards and Brian Jones and Noki Edwards and Wes Montgomery. And all the people that I like, I would inculcate that into one 
recipe, and that's how I kind of came up with my style. I mean, do you have to, you talk about learning the repertoire, but someone's mind would be blown that you can hit all the notes and there are no clams. I mean, to what degree do you have to practice that? Or have you put in so many hours in the past that it's just natural? Well, there's a, uh, there's probably a lot of clams. And nowadays with YouTube, you know, you, you're, there's no stone left unturned. Everybody can see one of your moments that's less than best. And I definitely, uh, I'm not the most consistent player in the world, but, uh, uh, it it takes practice, yeah. It 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 takes practice, and, and um, yeah, just working on the the melody, the harmony, and the rhythm. Just working on all the aspects. Welcome to Five Hundred Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. All right, come here. Check the backseat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. In your personal life, are you married? Not now, I'm not, no. Do you have children? I don't. To what degree do you believe your dedication to the guitar and the career sort of shut those avenues down? More than I wish they had, to be honest. Um, I think I'm, uh, speaking very candidly, I think I was so obsessed with music that I kind of lost track of life a little bit. You know, just like spending every waking moment chasing music. And 
I think it's important to have a balance in life. And to what degree are you a gearhead? Oh, less than I used to be. Um, I, I went through a period where, I mean, I, I, I still like, you know, stuff that sounds good, but I, I don't try to put as much emphasis on that now because it's, uh, it's kind of another rabbit hole you can get into. So how many guitars do you own? All right now, I don't own, uh, is, I've sold a lot of stuff. I probably own maybe 18 or 20 guitars at the most. And what did you, how did you decide to sell and how did you decide what to keep? Really just stuff that, that feels magical, that makes me want to play, that sounds good. And, and pieces that are sentimental. And so what are your favorites? I have a, a Martin that my father bought me when my guitars got stolen in 1982 and he replaced one. He bought me this Martin. That's a very sentimental guitar to me. I have a, another acoustic that Chet Atkins gave me. Um, any it, guitars that were gifts were, they're kind of very special to me. Um, my favorite, I, don't, uh, I, I just have like this, uh, I have, I, I work with Fender and I have an EJ Virginia model that's out on the market now. And I play one of those as far as an electric guitar. So to what degree did you customize it, make it different from usual Fender fare? It's almost totally stock. Um, on one of them, I put a switch where I can have the bridge pickup be humbucking or single coil, but the uh, some of the others are just stock. And then how do you set up your guitar? Are you like heavy gauge, light gauge? How's the action? To what degree do you change what comes off the uh, uh, assembly I line? To, I try to lower the action a little bit, and I use a medium gauge uh, string. Um yeah, I just kind of set it up as good as I can. Well, you're a Fender guy now, but you also have ES-335s. I mean, give me your take on the sound and the playing of different brands. Yeah, Gibsons are great. I love using those in the studio. They they have a, just an absolutely wonderful lead tone to them. I sometimes prefer the Strat um, for a rhythm sound. It's a little cleaner and clearer sounding. So a lot of times live, I'll use a Strat predominantly because it covers more basses. And what about effects? I use a lot of old funky effects because they, they, the analog ones sound better to me. And amps. Oh, the old funky ones. <laughs> but I How many use, amps do you own and what are you into? Yeah, about 18 or so, I guess, 18, 19, 20. I use a, a lot of old Fenders and Marshalls, but I do use um, this new amp called a Two Rock, which are really nice. What makes it special? Um, it's, it's a real clean kind of, has a lot of bravado for like a crunchy rhythm kind of tone. Um, it's kind of in between a Marshall and a Fender. So I like to use a three-way setup. I'll use like the Fender for clean and the two rock for kind of a crunchy rhythm and then uh, the Marshall for my lead tone. And you're on the road now because you want to be or because you have to be? Because uh, I want to be, I guess. Yeah. So how much you work in these days? Well, we did one long tour at the beginning of the year. And then I have another long tour starting in a few weeks, a couple months, and then uh, that'll probably be it for the year. I have uh, some sporadic shows after that, and then um, I'll be doing some uh, tours at the first of next year. And when acoustic and when with a band? 
Well, I haven't done any acoustic tours lately, but um, don't have any planned right now. But I have some new acoustic tunes that I'd like to put on a record. Yeah. And when do you decide to make a record? When I feel I've got enough music that's worth recording. I have, uh, right now, I uh, well, I released a double record about um, a year ago, and now I have uh, 12 new basic tracks that I've just completed, but I need to finish them off. And I see you in a studio now. People can't see. We're audio yeah. only. Is that your studio? It is. It is. Yeah. It's a place I started building many years ago. And yeah. Well, even, you know, I'm only looking at the monitors, but that's pretty extensive for a home studio. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you can see it, but it's got a console back here. There's a console back there. Yeah. What kind of console is that? It's called a, a Tone Lux, and I have a Neve and API stuff in there too. And what kind of speakers are you using for uh, monitor? A, they're ATCs. Yeah, which are really nice speakers. You do a lot of covers. How do you decide what songs to cover? Um, just songs that I, I like. I like doing Hendrix songs. Um, Sometimes I try to do Stevie Wonder songs, and I shouldn't really, because it's like out of my league. Really, I love Stevie Wonder. He's probably, other than the Beatles, he's probably my favorite pop artist there ever was. Um, but yeah, if it's just a song I like, or if I want to like do something crazy, do a song that that would not make sense for me to do, but I'll I'll rearrange it so that it works for me. And what about singing? You've been criticized in your career for uh, some of your vocals, although I think 40 Mile Town from Avia Musicom is great. So you have any self-consciousness or you just do what you do? Uh, I just do what I do, but yeah, it's, it, uh, I'm, no, I'm no great singer, really. I, I, yeah, I just decided to sing. You know, I could have very easily just gone, well, no, no, don't sing, get a lead singer. But I never... I just, I don't know, I decided to just kind of do it, but I i wouldn't say I've got a huge handle on singing, per se. And how's it worked out economically for you? You had a big hit, but then you spent money at Capital. Yeah. I don't know if you own your own publishing. Do you have any royalty income coming in? I do, I do. Um, yeah, I, uh, and then I do, you know, I work with uh, different artists on uh, or different companies for gear. Um, you know, that's put out in my design um, and then um, certain video things and, and stuff like that. Yeah, but it, it's worked out pretty well. And uh, what other gear do you make other than guitars? Well, I have my own uh, type of Jim Dumlop pick and then I have several different models of guitars with Fender. Um, I did have a... a fuzz unit out with my name on it but we it's been discontinued at this point and what's special about your picks um well they they're just a certain material they're a jazz three pick which they put out anyhow but then there's a, a version i have with a uh, the plastic's a little different and certainly those of us who lived through the 90s are aware of you are you happy of your, with your present status, or would you still like to reach more people and feel that there's more runway ahead? Um, I think I would like to just do a better job at what I do, and that doesn't mean play faster or crazier. It just means make music that would be um, 
as as is as valid to make as I can make, um, and and make people feel good because the whole all the rest of the stuff. I mean, I've I've done okay, you know. I don't. I'm I'm doing all right. Um, if 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 it was in my destiny to play to more people or or whatever, it'd be fine. But it's it's not it's not like a it it has to be that way. It's just it's more just how can I do a better job of what I'm I'm doing because um, I think things when you get older, it's like you can't really say, well, you know, I I I'm a musician and guitarist and I do this thing and there's all this. It's like there's something about that. It's like in the the movie The Wizard of Oz when they pulled the curtain back, you know, and when oh, there's you know he's back there pushing levers. It's not what you thought it was, and as you go through life, you realize that this stature, or this entitlement, or this thing, and all this stuff, you know, that we we put so much prominence on, it's like, um, that's not it. And what's it is just um, you know, developing that thing inside yourself to do the best you can. Um, and it's kind of like going to the hub of a bicycle wheel, then and then you take care of all the other spokes. If you if you can do that, you know, and then people enjoy that, you know. And I think the biggest turn on for me is if I go on the road and I can see that people, I'm making people feel good, or if I get a, a letter from or email that says, "Wow, you know, you helped me through a tough time." I mean, that there's nothing to compare with that right now. So that's really my um, bread and butter at this point. And I'm not saying the other stuff can't happen or shouldn't happen. Or whatever. It's just it's not it's it's not it's not my uh, uh, important currency right now as much. And are you just doing your own thing, or do you know other guitarists, other musicians, and hang and play with them? Oh yeah, I like to to jam with other people and stuff. You know, uh, Mike Stern and I made a record together, and I would love to make another record with him. He's a great musician and any other guitarists out there that people should be paying attention to uh well everybody you know uh i love bill frizzell and julian Lange. um geez there's so many there's a lot of great great uh players josh smith is great um yeah there's a there's a lot of them Okay, and who's coming to your shows at this point? Uh, looks like the crowd's gotten older, that's for sure, <laughs> you know, uh, and that's cool. Uh, I think we get, but we do get, I, you know, we do get kids coming out to this, uh, young kids sometimes that are interested in playing guitar, I think. So it's mostly fans, people who are pretty familiar with your music. Right, right, yeah. And then you talked about doing videos. You made, you made your own personal videos. Are you doing any other kind of instructional teaching thing? Yeah, I just finished one for a company called True Fire, and it's coming out in August. And that it was a pretty. It's a very comprehensive, like ten song. I wrote all these this music for the instructional video to kind of show my technique, and that's coming out at the end of August. It's an interactive thing. Sounds good, Eric. I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with my audience. Going to leave you with time to practice today. So thanks for talking to me. Oh, thank you, Bob. Thanks for doing this. You bet. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz.
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 